Well, good morning, Faith Church. I'm Eric Anderson, one of the elders here at Faith Church. It's my honor to get to open God's Word with you this morning. We're going to continue in a three-part series from a rather obscure book of the Bible, the book of Nahum. Last week, Pastor Clint got us started. And by the way, before I go a step further, I just want to say what, what a privilege it is to worship God, not only with all of you, but with my, my son Aiden leading worship with, uh, alongside of that. I just, thank you. I, I just, uh, that just blesses my heart. You know, a, a dad prays that his, his children will grow in the knowledge and love of him and be worshiping him, and I'm so grateful for that. But as, as we open this, the scriptures this morning, it continues a rather kind of dark chapter, to be honest. Um, and, and I don't particularly like it. It doesn't go very well with my personality. You know, I, I kind of prefer happy, happy music and happy uh, messages. And I don't love the blues. I don't sing dirges or funeral marches. Uh, last night, I, I made uh, my wife, Linda, listen to an old Steve Martin uh, skit. He, you know, he plays the banjo, and he's really pretty good. And one of his little skits was that you cannot possibly sing a sad song with a banjo. <laughs> and he went on to prove it by, he picked up his banjo and was singing about death and grief and sorrow and murder while he was play, playing a real happy tune. And it's, it's really funny. Um, and this morning, I didn't bring a banjo. Not that I could play it. But that is not the tone of the message. The tone is somber and serious, and, uh, but worthy of listening to, because that's how God has brought us to understand something that's very important this morning. And if you have one thing that you would take away from this message, I would, I would pray it would be this, that the means and the purposes of God's judgments bring glory to himself and hope to his people. The means... And the purposes of God's judgment bring glory to himself and hope to his people. Before we go any further, I know we've prayed a couple times, but I need prayer. I'm going to uh, take us before the Lord just for a moment. Lord, I just pray this morning that your word would warn us and encourage us that you are a good and righteous judge. Lord, you are sovereign over all the means of your judgments and punishments. You are patient, and still you are just. And I pray that we would each respond accordingly, and we commit this back to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we jump into Nahum chapter 2, I want to spend just a, a few moments uh, kind of in a little bit of background for this message. And, and the, the background is framed in the first part of the message, which is the reasons for God's judgment. Why is it that we're here? Why are we going to be studying and listening and understanding more about how God is judged, judging the people of Nineveh? Well, this is the time in Israel's history of the divided kingdom, where there's a northern uh, kingdom with the ten tribes, and then the tribe of Judah in the southern kingdom with their own king. And more specifically, this is a time in history where the northern kingdom has already been dispersed by... by uh, the Assyrians. By the way, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, if you didn't know that, and that's, and that's, where, the, um, that's where the book of Nahum is, is uh, that's the setting for it. But the Assyrians have already been raised up by God to do a work, and that is to punish Israel. And that's the first reason for why we're here this morning. It is the sin of Israel and Judah. Now, uh, earlier Dave read from 
2 Kings chapter 17, which described in detail the fact that the Assyrians had carried the ten tribes away to their own lands. And it occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. So Israel was specifically enslaved and dispersed by Assyria and by Nineveh uh, by the hand of God, by the hand of God because of their sin and their own rebellion. God's people were rebelling against God, and so God raised up those who do not know God to accomplish God's purposes. It's a remarkable thing that he's able to do. Well, there's a similar story going on in the southern kingdom, in the kingdom of Judah, at the exact same time. If you were in 2 Kings and you flip ahead a few passages, you get to read about the king Manasseh. And I'm going to read about Manasseh for you for, for just a moment. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the people of Israel. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord. He burned his own son as an offering. And he used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord and provoked him to anger. Jumping down to verse 9, Manasseh led the people astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such distaste that the Ears of everyone who hear it will, be, will tingle. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides the evil that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's the description of God's people and God's leader, the, the king of, of Judah. And it's, it's remarkably awful. In fact, you know, if... Have you ever seen one of those movies where there's no good guys? It's very unnerving and unsettling. I I really prefer simple movies with here's the good guys and here's the bad guys and the good guys are going to win. Like that new Top Gun movie, it's really good and it's really got, like I know who the good guys are and there's no doubt and I'll let you see the movie. But all that to say, there are movies that are so depressing because they're, and, and stories, because nobody is doing anything right. And this kind of describes the state of humanity, to be honest, not, not only in the time of, of Israel and Judah, but even until now, uh, as history unfolds, you just wonder, where are the good guys? There is nothing but wickedness going on. Now, I do want to quickly add this, because it was true then, and it's true today, that there is always a remnant. There are always people who have been touched by the Spirit of God, who know Him and love Him and serve Him and desire that things would be made right. We know that was true then. Listen to the prophet Nahum or his, his, uh, his contemporary Habakkuk and the others, as we read before, that God raised up as voices of truth and goodness. There are people who love and know and serve him everywhere we go, but they're a remnant. And in the midst of all of this, there's just a really challenging truth. And that is this, that God, God's judgment 
is upon those whom he uses to judge the people that he's correcting. God's judgment is upon the people that, the very people that he uses and even raises up to accomplish his purposes and to correct his own people. It's a mysterious thing, and only the hand of a sovereign God could do this and do it right and do it well. You know, remember Joseph was uh, thrown into a well and then sold to some Egyptians by his brothers in Genesis? Uh, what did he say when, when God, through the years, raised, up him, raised Joseph up to be second in command of all of Egypt? When he was re reunited with uh, his brothers, they were terrified, and they were uh, falling before him, thinking they were going to be destroyed. And what Joseph said to them in Genesis 50 is, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's how he has done this and how he continues to do this. He did it with the Assyrians as, we, as it relates to the people of Israel. He did it with the Babylonians in, in Israel and Judah and against the Ninevites. He did it in the time of Jesus Christ through the Romans and through Jews who had wanted nothing to do with, the, with God himself. There are people who have been used by God to judge and to refine his people and to accomplish his good work. And then there are individuals like Pharaoh. Pharaoh was raised up by God and his heart was hardened on purpose so that he, he would uh, not let the people go until God at the appointed time showed himself to be so strong and mighty. He raised up King Saul at the request of, of God's own people and used him to, uh, in contrast to, to King David, but it, he used Saul to accomplish his purposes. The same is true of Judas Iscariot and of Pontius Pilate in the time of Christ. These are people who, who in their evil ways, thought they were doing what they wanted to do, but in reality, they were being used by God to his purposes God has even used Satan and his minions to accomplish the perfecting of his own saints uh, through trials and torment when, when people are known to go astray. So even as God raised up or allowed the Assyrians to punish Israel, he will punish the punishers, okay? And, it, and there's a second and obvious reason for God's judgment in this story that's very simply this, the sin of Nineveh itself. The sin of Nineveh was incredibly and exceedingly awful along the lines of what Manasseh was doing. Uh, Tim Mackey describes the culture of Assyria as one that was built on evil and on injustice. Imagine having a, a, a system of, of a government which was entirely and completely unjust from top to bottom. It may not be that hard to imagine sometimes. <clears throat> but in chapter 1, last week, Pastor Clint uh, reminded us that the, that the people of Nineveh were described as vile by the prophet. <clears throat> so we, we can clearly see the reasons for God's judgment. It's the wickedness of sin and sin of not only the characters in our story this morning, but really all of humanity. And that brings us to the second part of this message, which is that we need to look at the means of God's judgment. And they're as, as wide and varied as can be, but in this particular story, there are a couple of ways that God reveals how it is that he will judge people. The first one is, is that the people of Israel were exiled uh, by Assyria and Nineveh. We, we already saw this. God chose a terrible, awful people 
the people of Nineveh to judge and refine his own. Nineveh was a means for God's judgment against Israel that those who know and love him might be revealed and that he might correct uh, those that he loves. Um, And then there's another one, and this is more specific to chapter 2, which we're finally about to open here. Uh, The destruction of Nineveh was accomplished by the Babylonians. Now, that was threatened 100 years before. Remember Jonah, the the most reluctant prophet ever, was finally... uh, coerced by a giant fish and by, by God himself to, to go to Nineveh and to preach. And he preached the world's worst sermon. And he said, 40 days and you'll be destroyed, the end, and sat down. <clears throat> and what did the people do? They repented. Just like Jonah said, I knew it. I knew they would repent. I hate that. <clears throat> and they did. And, and so for over 100 years, God had relented to the people of Nineveh, but no more. And here we are now in this time, and the prophet Nahum is raised up to preach a similar sermon, but with a few more words against the people of Nineveh. And let's pick that up now in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And Nahum is now referring to the Babylonians when he says this, that the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the roads, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Then down in verse 3, the shield of his mighty men are red, his soldiers are clothed in scarlet, the chariots come with flashing metal on the day that he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. So the Lord has chosen the Babylonians or the Chaldeans to overthrow Nineveh and all the armies and all the walls and fortresses and the strength of Nineveh is hopeless and useless against what what God is going to do through another wicked nation. And picking up in verse 4, Nineveh's chariots race madly through their streets. They rush to and fro through the squares, gleaming like torches. They dart like lightning. But his officers, they stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. They, They hasten to the wall, but the siege tower is already set up. The river gates have been opened, and the palace melts away. So despite all the sound and fury signifying nothing of the army of Nineveh, it's too late. And the, the, the other bad guys have come and have conquered and are overthrowing the city of Nineveh. And then verses 7 through 10, and I won't read them all word for word, describe the fact that the women of Nineveh are carried off, that all the treasures of the city are plundered. And it was an incredible city. It was the, the biggest and most... Uh, most well-renowned city in, in the, the whole area. And everyone that was left alive is in utter anguish and in terror and fear and dread. And then there's a particular treasure of Nineveh that I want to spend a little bit of time on this morning. The Assyrians were obsessed with lions. They had lions as pets. They brought lions into the arena. They went on lion hunts. Their, their lions are in their artwork and in, all, in their carvings. And uh, in fact, the British Museum has, has, has uh, found from the city of Nineveh, and, and they've got three rooms on display. And I've, not that I've been there, but I was, you know, Google's a wonderful thing. And I found that there are three rooms in the British Museum of, the, of Nineveh's artwork regarding their lions. If Nineveh had an NFL team, it would be nicknamed the Lions. This is, a, this is their identity. 
And that might help us to see some meaning in verse 11 through 13. Let me just read those for you. Where is that lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. But then verse 13 says that the sword of Babylon will destroy those lions. So that the sword of, of the Babylonians destroyed what really amounts to be the identity of Nineveh. Now, I can see why you'd want to be a lion. I can see why you would revere lions. They're at the top of the food chain. They're awesome and terrifying. But they are also in zoos. And they're trained by MGM to roar for movies. And their, lion, their mouths can be shut by the Lord and they can be hunted and killed and destroyed. So as awesome as lions are, they are not really at the apex of things. But there is one lion who is different. And I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 5 to read about a different lion. Starting in verse 1 of John's vision that the Lord has given him, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel pro proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open that scroll or look into it. And I began to weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. But then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and, and its seven seals. And they sang a new song. And by the way, we sang that song. We're going to sing it again here after the message. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus Christ is the Lion of Judah. He is, he is the apex and at the top of all of all of creation. He is the ultimate judge as well. You know, we don't always think of Jesus Christ as, as judge, but indeed those scrolls that he is worthy to open are the scrolls of judgment, of the ultimate judgment of God. And it's a, it's a terrifying thing if you read on in the book of Revelation as in terms of what is going to happen. So he's worthy. Why is he worthy? The Bible tells us why he's worthy. Because he died in our place to ransom people for God from every tongue and tribe and nation. The Lion of Judah is also the Lamb of God, sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. Now, if your first encounter with Christ is as the Lion of Judah and as the judge, instead of as the Lamb of God, it's a very, very bad day for you, for us. Because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has been sacrificed on behalf and because of our sins that we might live forever. 
So we're counted among these rebellious sinners. This is not just about Nineveh. This is not just about Israel, right? This is about all of humanity. God calls us to stop trusting in our stuff, in our armies, in our artwork, in our cities or our heritage, to stop trusting in our lions and our pets, but instead to put our trust in Christ, believing that he died in our place, he paid the penalty for our sins and is worthy of us giving our entire lives to him. That, that is who the Lion of Judah is. Now this, this pattern, this pattern that's been going on in this, in this uh, story is one kingdom destroying another, but it keeps going. We're not done. Wait, there's more, right? Another means of judgment right out of this passage. Actually, you have to read a little beyond, like perhaps the book of Habakkuk. You find that the, the Babylonians who God raised up to destroy Nineveh, and by the way, the Babylonians were also raised up to destroy Judah, to the southern kingdom. But they're, they're, they didn't last forever. They, God raised another to destroy them. If you, re, if you flip ahead a little bit in your Bible, you don't have to write this moment, you'll run into the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is now on the, the top heap of kingdom leaders, right? And Nebuchadnezzar is so proud of himself. He's always making statues for himself. And, and then suddenly the Lord starts giving him dreams. And in one dream, he, he dreams that there's this statue of gold, silver, bronze, uh, iron, and stone, and then a bunch of dirt in his toes and all this. And, uh, and he has no idea what it's all about. He he looks around and finally finds Daniel, and Daniel not only interprets the dream, he knows what the dream is in the first place, and he says that, the, that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, your kingdom, the kingdom of gold, granted you're on top, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed, and, and it'll be give, give way to another one, and that will be destroyed, and then another, and that will be destroyed. And they're all destroyed by a stone not made by hands, the same stone that represents Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah. The, the judgment of God upon the earthly kingdoms is a pattern that has been going on for all of history and will go on until his kingdom is forever. And think about how messy that is. And I don't blame you if you say, I don't like that. That doesn't sound like how we ought to do it. And, and you might take issue with God. You know, if, if you were an Israelite and you were being delivered from the hands of Nineveh, wouldn't you have preferred that the, the deliverer was God himself, some good guy who was out at, for your best? I, sure, that, that's what I'd prefer. Um, that's what, that's, by the way, that's what Lithuania preferred in World War II. You know, Lithuania was uh, conquered by the Nazis and 90% and of the Jews in that country were killed. And they were absolutely besieged by a horrible, horrible nation. So at the end of the world, at World War II, did Captain America come rushing into Lithuania? He did not. God raised up the Russians to come and save the Lithuanians. And then they spent 45 years in absolute te terrible conditions under Russian rule. And that's, been, that's similar to the pattern of Scripture we're seeing right here. Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, was complaining to God about how he was doing things. Because when the Babylonians came in and wiped out Judah, um, it was pro prophesied by the Lord that that would happen. And 
And Habakkuk basically said, that's a terrible idea. I don't know why you would do that, but Lord. That makes no sense. Your eyes are too pure to do something that, that weird. And you know what God said? Trust me. I get it. I know what is evil and I know what is good. And they will get theirs. In the meantime, I'm raising up the Babylonians to do my work. He kind of said, be, sit down and be quiet because I am going to do this in accordance with my own purposes. Now, these purposes of God's judgments, they, they are a little confounding sometimes, but they're helpful for us. To, and I want to spend the, the latter part of this message on, on why, what it is that God is accomplishing when he's bringing about judgment in, by whatever means he chooses. Now, the first purpose of God's judgment is a, is a positive and an encouraging one. He's encouraging and restoring his own people. We see that here in Nahum chapter 2, verse 2, which says that the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. It's almost like the Lord is saying, yeah, they've been wiped out, but that's long enough. And uh, these are, should be words of hope for, for God's people when we are uh, dealing with the kind of, the, the kind of uh, destruction that, uh, that often happens. Um, and that those who are looking to the Lord would be greatly encouraged by the, the fact that God is choosing to deal with unrighteousness by the judgment, even, no matter what, where that judgment comes from. And uh, the thing is, though, the thing is, it says a whole lot more about the patience and the mercy and the kindness of God than it does about the people that he is restoring. Well, didn't we just read in, in 2 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 21 how rotten his own people had become? And yet God is saying, I'm going to restore their majesty. And you read that and you say, Why? Why? What in the world? Why would you do that? And you know what the reason is? Be because he loves them. Now, why does he love them? Because he loves them. It's not because of how lovable they are. And the same is true for us. God is re redeeming us for his namesake, for his glory, not because we're so awesome to begin with. Now, granted, we're made in the image of God, but this, this business of redemption is about God. It's not about us. We're just the happy beneficiaries of eternal life. He is also doing another work in his, in his uh, wrath, in his, uh, and that is this. Uh, he's refining his people in his judgments. He's refining his own people. That's not nearly as fun as encouraging his people. Um, and it's helpful right here to distinguish the, the kind of um, judgment that comes at the end of the age, like when the scrolls are being opened, which is the final destruction of those who are separate from, separated from God uh, and are never going to be with him. That's not the judgment we're talking about here. This is the judgment that's the process of sanctification. This is the work that we studied in 1 Peter, where God uses suffering and even other wicked, evil people in our lives to perfect us and help us to grow in our appreciation for and in our love for the Lord. You know, James reminds us to consider it joy when we meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So throughout history, God has been using godless people to accomplish God's work 
of, uh, in his own. He continues to do it today, and he was certainly doing it here in Nahum. He uses godless people to accomplish his purposes for his own. There's also an important purpose for God's judgment and wrath, and that is to bring about salvation, to bring about repentance. And you think, well, how can that be? Well, that, that comes back to what I said at the beginning. I, I am a terrible hellfire and brimstone preacher, okay? I'm way too nice, and it's my downfall. But the thing is, God's word is firm and strong and clear that this is a work of God that is a warning that we might turn away from our own ways and cling to God and cry out to him that we could, we could avoid the judgment that he, is, that, that he is proclaiming. You know, Nineveh did that. There's one example, 100 years before, it worked. The people of Nineveh repented when they were told they were going to be destroyed. And there's always people responding in repentance at the threat of God's judgment. There's one going on here that's almost impossible to believe. If you know your history about Manasseh, the worst king, the most evil and wicked king uh, ever, you know that Manasseh repented. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, the Bible says that Manasseh turned to the Lord. He had been, he was wiped out by these same people, these Assyrians. He was brought into captivity and he turned to the Lord and repented of his wicked ways and he was restored by God to, as king. And I presume as a good king for the re remainder of his life. And then how about that king of, of, the, of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar? You know, another bad guy, worst upon worst. He made statues of himself and said, bow down to my statue. You know, that's, won't that be fun? I've made myself a god. And uh, through the, the prophet Daniel and then just through the Lord's intervention directly upon himself, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was brought low. He was humiliated by God. He was sent out into the fields for a year to live like a cow, eating grass out of his mind, out of his gourd. But he had enough sense. He had enough sense to realize that God was doing a work, that God had been speaking to him through Daniel and his friends, and he repented, and he turned back to the Lord and then governed rightly. In fact, the last words of Nebuchadnezzar that are recorded in the Bible is from Daniel chapter 4. And from experience, I can tell you from experience, here's what Nebuchadnezzar said. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And, and that's just a remarkable thing because the wickedness of the people of Nineveh, the wickedness of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the absolute wickedness of, the, of King Manasseh is overwhelming. And yet God was able to accomplish his work and bring them to repentance. And that, that might bring us to the moment here right now. I often talk to people and I've had folks tell me, well, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. I am beyond the reach of God. My life has been nothing but rottenness. And so, yeah, I'm done. God is done with me. Well, you didn't spill blood until it ran in the street of Jerusalem. You didn't wipe out entire nations for your own benefit. You, you didn't raise statues to yourself and make people bow to them and kill everyone who didn't. 
So I'm sorry, it's not, it's not right and it's not logical. When you hear, read God's word, you will find that no one is beyond his reach. No one, and you are not beyond his reach. So if this is the day that God is calling you to, to repentance, to trusting in him, then respond because it's, it's not too late. It is not too late. The final reason for God's judgment, the, and this is one that will last forever, is that he is going to eradicate sin. He is in the, pro, it's not yet, but he is eradicating sin. And the very last verse of Nahum chapter 2 says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword of shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. See, there will be a day when the messengers of, the de- of our society and our world will no longer be heard, and I can't wait for it. I am tired of the voices day and night on the, emanating in print and in the newspapers with nonsense to, that they have to say. And if you don't believe and you don't conform to those voices and those messengers, well then, shame on you because you can believe anything you want except to believe that there's only one way to God. And that's we who follow Christ are, we're, we're on the outs. We, we're, not, we're not among those who the messengers would ever raise up or, or lift up anymore. But God is doing away with it. He's going to eradicate sin. And he has to eradicate sin because his eternity and our eternity with him is going to be void of sin. There is not going to be any more sin. So let's look at Revelation 22, just to, to take, a, take this darkness and see what kind of wonderful light it's going to create for us. From Revelation 22, a description of our, our, what is ahead for us who know and love him. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in season. The leaves of the tree will be for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Then they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no more need for the light of a lamp or the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now that's what I'm looking forward to. The judgment of God now and in the future needs to occur so that there will be no sin or darkness, or night, or judgment, and nothing accursed in his presence for all of eternity. It has to happen. It has to occur. It's not pleasant, but it's marvelous in its end purpose. God's judgment brings glory to himself. All things are being made new. His perfect creation will be what we get to enjoy, perfected as, as his children, not dealing with the old man, the flesh. It's gone. 
God's judgment brings us the hope of eternity being made right with him. We get to experience life without sin or judgment because God is willing to judge sin today. Will you pray with me? Lord, I, I do thank you for these hard judgments. I thank you for the hard, painful death, grief, sorrow, and murder that, that comes along with the judgment of one evil empire to another. And you call it good in your hand because you judge the nations and your judgments are good. You are, you are good. You will use whatever means you choose to refine and encourage and to judge, and we trust you. Through the Lion of Judah, may we be made right with you today to the, for the privilege of enjoying your presence forever. Thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen.